What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I'm here with my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, welcome back to America, man. Hey, man. That European life is fun, but the culture continues. And I'm still staying up on everything, even when I'm away, because that's why I'm here. Happy to be back. The culture doesn't stop. And we got a lot to talk about today. We got lots of music, TV, movies, bringing it all to you. We're going to jump right in. But before we do, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod and find all the ways to listen to the podcast there. All right. So we recorded right after we watched Aladdin, listened to the Beast Coast album. I kind of wish we had listened to YG first, because... This YG album that we're going to be talking about is great, but I want to touch on two other albums first. So let's start with Steve Lacey, uh, our guy from the internet, guitar prodigy, perhaps. A lo- lot of potential in, in this young man, and you know he's, he's dropped some solo demos, he's helped out, he's most recently featured on the Vampire Weekend album, pretty good effect, I think people really liked the song Sunflower, uh, that he had a heavy influence on. This solo project, his first his debut album, Apollo 21. Ooh, Dave, <laughs> g- give me one one word to describe it. When he joins the internet is when they get Grammy attention. So like he gets really famous in like you know music critical circles right away. But as you said, he's young. He's only just turned twenty one. It's not a lot for that. But yeah, this debut album, following up on the demos project. One word. Disappointing. Incomplete. <laughs> unfinished. Proof of concept. Unfinished. One phrase. That's that's what we're going with. <laughs> unfinished. I think fits right because it, it sounds like there's some good stuff in here but a lot of ideas that just are kind of mishmashed around not really fully developed and this thing i feel like could have been so much better but Lacey, it felt like got a little muddled down in terms of either not knowing what he wanted to say or not really having exactly what he wanted to say and i think probably out of everything the lyrics on this are what are most underwhelming there's some moments here when you're like oh steve Lacey, bisexual how about that Mm-hmm. It ain't Flower Boy, though. It's not profound, no. and most of the songs aren't, aren't anything special, so it just doesn't really land. And again, like because he's already proven himself as a composer and arranger, and obviously he's well-regarded as a someone to have just to do sessions with as a guitarist and all that, right? Like He has that talent, but it just doesn't feel like as a performer, or at least as a lead performer, apart from the internet, that he just hasn't put it all together because I thought even like the singing was just okay and he definitely feels like the ingenue status that he kind of has in you know hipster music circles right now but yeah I mean like he just doesn't really have the records right now there's really not much on this album that's gonna really last I mean there's there's moments I like on songs like like me and guide there's there are so- songs I thought sound nice but mm-hmm. nothing feels that special and when you already have this kind of gravitas around your career at such a young age it just makes it even more underwhelming when nothing really bubbles to the top on your debut album uh, it kind of sucks obviously he'll be back but i mean did you have any songs that you uh liked that stood out to you at least a little bit none that i'm really going to remember a lot of times we think about what stands out so we can put it on our playlist uh nostalgia best of 2019 on spotify and i there wasn't one that i felt was worthy of it like me you mentioned is the one where he talks about his sexuality and his struggles with that and I feel like that song, if it had been maybe only the first half would have been yeah. great. But then it goes into this weird, like, I don't know, almost like clips of different instrumentals near the end that don't even seem to really fit together. And it's like, I'm, I'm not sure if he was trying to, like, make a statement with that or something, but it just didn't seem to really fit. Overall, this is pretty forgettable and a, a bit disappointing. You know, we were kind of hyped for the Steve Lacey album, and I think he's, he needs a little bit more refining. Yeah, uh, more seasoning. Album number two. 
for sure. And I'm sure we'll get another internet project before then, so maybe that will help him start to find a little bit more of his solo voice as well. Someone who has an established voice in music, though, is Flying Lotus. And he came out with the sixth album, Flamagra, about two weeks ago. Flying Lotus is interesting. So I think he came to most people's consciousness when he started working with Kendrick Lamar a lot. And he had already been established in jazz funk circles way before that. He was a producer, a DJ. He's pretty influential and established. Flamagra is an interesting album. It's his longest album. It probably feels like his least jazz-influenced album, but it also seems to be his most experimental album today, at least from what I've listened. I've listened to all six. I've listened to, I think, only like two or three of them. And I found this album to be good at times and at other times really, really puzzling. I'm wondering if it hits you the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's his longest album as well, so inevitably it's going to feel all over the place when you're a dj when there's a lot of instrumental only tracks it, it, it's gonna kind of just move around and i feel like that's what this one does where i feel like you can because the he's always been someone who makes all kinds of weird sounds in his production he's a very unique guy but when it all comes to a head on one record song to song especially when a lot of these songs are like really long or like have multiple parts to them it just kind of feels really messy when you can't really discern a like an arrow for the album and i've always found his music his solo music a bit inaccessible or at least a bit hit or miss just for me just because it's i I, in general i feel that way about instrumental tracks but like you're dead even which was really well regarded his last album and that's also quite old now fall 2014 but even you're dead which uh song of kendrick was really well well liked but even that album i thought was it's just really weird like it's never he doesn't make albums that i feel like you can put on front to back unless you're just gonna kind of just zone out and like for flamagra i just I don't know. I just kind of would just lose. I was lost interest sometimes. Where I feel like this is just this song is just too much. There's just too many drums on this. There's too much, too much everything, you know. And other songs mm-hmm. were like a w- way more refined. Like the song with Anderson Pack early on. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Or like when you have like a guest vocal, even like Tierra Whack. It's not like the best Tierra Whack feature ever, but it still kind of feels like a nice change of pace when you listen to all this weird flying lotus shit. And then you're oh, here's something, something else. I don't know. It's just it's just kind of like a weird like gumbo of of sounds. Yeah. But that's that's what he likes to do. So I feel like for a lot of his fans, they're probably plenty happy with it. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think he I think this is a, a bit divisive, even for his those real uh, flying lotus heads, which, you know, hit that subscribe button if you're a flying lotus head <laughs> who found this breakout. You know, he seems to take ideas in a lot of his album and kind of build around them. And this one felt like he had a bunch of ideas and almost kind of like instead of writing an essay, he was just like giving like snippets of poems mm. or something like that. And it's, it, I'm not sure if there was one central piece to it. You know, the, the Pitchfork review for this talked about how he didn't really have a concept. And then he heard David Lynch talking yeah. at a party, you know, the, the spoken word on this. And that, that kind of became like the like fire on a hill was it? And that David Lynch talking kind of seemed to be what drove this together. But I don't know what what the concept of that even is or if that makes sense <laughs> very lynchian in that regard not actually knowing yeah. the point makes a lot of sense <laughs> great, actually <laughs> great point but i do think that there's a couple of songs on here that really stand out you mentioned 
the uh, track with Tierra Whack, which I thought was really good, Yellow Belly. I enjoyed that. It was a little more sparse down than the other tracks, which I think actually helped the song. And Tierra Whack, I, I feel like every time she pops up, I just enjoy her. The David Lynch song, Fire's Coming, I did really enjoy. I thought that was pretty good. And then there was one other one I wanted to... Oh, this, the Pack song, obviously, you already mentioned. I thought all those were really good. And I think that just speaks to... Uh, I think my, one of my musical tastes, I want to hear these people I like working with Flying Lotus, but I don't necessarily yes. want to listen to Flying Lotus himself. And I think that, that works to his strength as well. Yeah, well, I, I, if I remember right, the, Den, the Denzel, the David Lynch song was actually released as one of the first few singles, and I heard it, and I was like, yeah, first single. this is really weird and inaccessible, and I don't get it. Like, this is actually a song. This is like like a weird like interlude. But then actually when you hear it in the vague context of the track list, you're like, oh, I guess this kind of makes more sense now. And having it follow up Black Balloon's reprise, which is like a pseudo-sequel song to the Black Balloon's track off Taboo, Denzel Curry's album last year, and Denzel just comes in and, like you, like as we expect, just kind of uses Fire Blast on the track. And again, like hearing Denzel and, and Lotus, as you said, hearing two people you like together, that's cool. But honestly, my, fa- my favorite Flying Lotus solo work is his captain murphy alter ego when he raps on that mixtape duality from 2012 that's like this secret mixtape he made it's on streaming it was, we didn't even know it was flying lotus for like six months and that's really awesome stuff and like he's such a talented guy that it almost is a little weird sometimes that he just wants to kind of get lost in all the sounds but then again i guess that's what drove him to like found brain feeder in the first place is to just attract all this talent all over the place like obviously like he's thundercat is signed to fly low like that i feel like that says a lot but yeah not an album i'm gonna run back that often but just just i don't know just i feel like it's just a little inaccessible for me i agree one other song i did, I did want to shout out before we move on uh thank you malcolm which i, th- I thought was of a course. really beautiful song shout out to mac miller moving on to yg faux hunted for real for real man uh, I put this on at the gym, and I started running to it, and I don't think I stopped or felt tired after listening to it. It was just that invigorating. YG dropped an album last year, Stay, Stay Dangerous. and yep. Same day as World and Mac Miller's album, Big Day. And from what I recall, we were like, man, that, this, this is just disappointing. Yeah. Like, it, it felt very just vanilla for YG, I think, was a lot of the take. Very generic. Exactly. And it was disappointing because it was following up Still Brazy, which was mm. this awesome Kali G Funk throwback, political leaning, talking about race, a lot, a lot of awesome stuff on there, and which was really refreshing and surprising because we hadn't heard that from YG before. And then to f- hear him just fall back into generic, mainstream, low bar, contemporary rap last August, it's like, fuck, man. Like, did we just miss this window? Like, is it over? Is YG just going to phone it in? Then he bounces back really quick, but for real, for real. Which even though it sold less first week than Say Dangerous, he got all the critics back on board, and I feel like he got all his real fans back, which is exciting because I've always believed in him as an artist. Yeah, and I think I think what I like most is this feels like a, a return to uh, stay bra- stay breezy in a lot of ways. Uh, stay breezy, sorry. And he he really just dives back into that like West Coast sound mm. so much on this. And he keeps it pretty simple. Like, I don't think there's many beats on here that I find very, like, complex or, like... That's mustard, man. Yeah, but he he kills it. And and the thing is, I think that sparseness actually allows YG's voice and his message, which, I mean, I think that's the one knock is he has... He's kind of a, like, a three-note type of guy in terms of message. We'll we'll get to Hmm. that in a little bit. But I think he, he actually just sounds so clear, so confident, and just 
awesome on this whole whole thing and each each track is different in a way but it all seems to flow together well really really enjoyed for real for real any other thoughts on it for you before we start talking about the tracks we liked it's just really exciting to have someone who we really did hold up just two years ago three years two and a half years ago as a really exciting guy to watch like i think yg is in his 30 now he's about yeah he's 29 so it's like he's been around a long time and but to see him come so far from Tudin and Buddha, his first big hit, <laughs> and then again, like that crest, like I was, I was incredible. That was honestly one of the most disappointing albums I heard last year. So dangerous, just because I was such a big fan and saw all the talent that he and all the great songs he'd already made. So it's just really satisfying that even if this is not going to be the biggest YG album and it won't be the best YG album, the fact that he got himself back to this point it's just really really heartwarming to be honest and especially considering it's coming under the shadow of uh, the passing of nipsey hustle who was a really close mentor and friend of yg and of course they're yeah. featured together on fdt but they hear him so inspired so soon after the passing of his friend uh, is also really great dear yeah and he talks about that on the album actually in one of the, the later tracks to go to like the one note or like the three note thing i do feel like he talks a lot about haters uh, about snitches and about i don't know bitches (laughs) yeah bitches i guess broke dudes too he seems to have his own his own lane with this stuff it's like a venn diagram he just like circles he puts you on if you qualify as more than one of those things (laughs) (laughs) right which i i don't hate so much he kind of reminds me in a lot of ways and we we talked about this off air about push a t he seems like the west Mm -hmm. coast push a t in a lot of ways you know push has like that one lane he's like a drug dealer he's going to talk about cocaine Mm -hmm. cocaine dealing and I don't mind hearing which he talk about that. He owns, I think YG nope. has a lane that he owns. The one exception to what I'm saying is uh, Keisha. I th- thought was a song that got a little bit out of that the that three note, mm-hmm. so to speak. Keisha so, killed a baby or whatever it's called. Keisha had a baby. Keisha had a baby. So I think he I think he has potential to drive out there. That was actually a really nice soulful piano song from mm-hmm. YG. So. What, what song stood out to you on this? It's funny. So when I first heard Stop Snitching, the lead single... I was like, oh, this is all right, but like the repetitiveness of the hook turned me off at first. But once I heard it on the album, and once you really back into this vibe, and then especially at the end when you hear the remix with the baby, it's like, oh yeah, this song actually fucking rules. And yeah. once you realize it's also like a pointed, explicit six nine diss, it makes it even better. <laughs> but I mean, it starts off really hot right away with hard bottoms and white socks, bottle service, and in the dark. And then you get yep. the second single, Go Loco, which has a really fun obviously like mariachi uh style with an, uh, actually i think tiger rides the beat really well as a feature and yeah i, I think you just kind of off to the race at that point but he, those first three tracks bottle service in the dark hard bombs white socks th- th- those feel like the classic yg that we were holding up just a few years ago so like it just get, it gets you gets you back really quick yeah i also really enjoyed how funky do you dances yeah just like a fun mm-hmm. song and also, I'm, I was on the block. I thought it was a really, really great track. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, one of the, I think one of the better songs off the back half of the album. Yep. So overall, really can't recommend for real, for real enough. Let's talk about a grime rapper from from London, England, London town, Skepta, Big Dings, Ignorance is Bliss. Follow up to 2016's Kanichiwa. Where does Skepta come from, man? Well, he's been around a long time. He's 36. But he was in like groups and stuff before he was solo. So like, if you were in on that grime scene, you know about Skepta long ass time. But I feel like even for us in the the U.S., like we've known at least known of Skepta for a very long time too. 
I feel like this album particularly has gotten a lot of buzz, though. And I don't remember hearing as much about Kanichiwa 2016. It seems like his star, his profile has risen some. Yeah, well, check out our, our video about Drake being a culture vulture. We talk about Drake's influence <laughs> on popularizing grime music here in the States. And whether you have a problem with that or not, it did happen. And Skepta is one of the first people he really started to big up and... I mean, on Konichiwa, and Konichiwa honestly is like heralded as like a grime touchstone of this decade. And that album fucking rules and shut down, of course, his biggest hit from that. In the beginning, you hear Drake in his South London accent. Man's, I mean, Marky with the head talk, trust me, daddy. Like, you know, that, that weird, that weird Drake, Drake sample. And since then, obviously, Skepta has been on Drake albums. He's has he was on Praise the Lord with ASAP Rocky last year. Like he's kind of been closing that barrier between UK rap, US rap, and just making it just more rap, right? But you're right. There has been more energy here about this album. And I think part of that is because Konichiwa was so well received and people that did know about it understood that Skepta had truly gotten past the corny uh, early 2010s era of grime where grime wasn't that respected over here. I feel like he's kind of, it's still very much grime music, obviously, and Skepta himself is still very much himself on this, this Aiders is Bliss. I mean, the very workmanlike bars and these very uh, peculiar beats that really stand out in the age of trap. But because he's more famous now and he has more notable records that people can point to, and also, frankly, because other grime rappers are big as well, like Stormzy and Octavian and all that, mm-hmm. I just think there's just much more buzz about what's coming out of the UK right now. And also helps that the album is good. Yeah, it is good. And I think what I enjoyed most about it, and I'm not a huge skeptic head, is I, I felt like, even though I don't I don't know if I'm going to be revisiting these songs a ton, it like changed up throughout the album for me, and no one song really sounded the same as the last. And I think I enjoyed just hearing the, the variety on here. And Skepta, I don't know if it's like just the way he, he flows. I don't know if it's his voice, but something about it just seems like really fun to listen to. Yeah. And like you just kind of like bob your head along to it and it feels like a party. Like you're just kind of like moving all of a sudden. It's great. He makes the UK accent just sound so cool. You know, yeah. like I'm going through it. Like it's just, yeah. no matter what he says, it just sounds better because he's saying it as a Londoner. It's just cool. <laughs> yeah, but his voice too is like, like the way you just said, like I'm going through it. Like, I don't know how he gets like certain like ranges, but it just sounds like, okay, like this is a guy like who is going to be like, I don't know, in a football, like hoodlum or something. Mm-hmm. It's it's, it's a fun album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of tracks. like, you can see in, in our, the picture you got behind you on the screen. What? songs or what did you most enjoy from this album yeah so the first two singles i think they both came out at the same time bullet from a gun and grease mode <laughs> first two tracks on the album when i heard them as singles i'm like all right it's a solid just skeptic but then once i heard once i listened to the album i was like oh fuck these songs actually are awesome i really like bullet from a gun and grease mode mm-hmm. i think because it has that feature on there and because the video is so bonkers uh i really like those tracks but then even like uh what do you mean when you have this like this like more r&b chorus then you have skepta ride and flow with that with his again his workman like his really solid verses uh, he i feel like he always has solid verses and even if he might be retreading the same ground lyrically like a lot of a lot of this uh, on this album is now how he just he's just totally made it now it's kind of like logic now he's like let me open up my closet man all these these new things in there like like 
we get it. Like he's rich as fuck and he's successful, but because his verses sound so good and because most of the beats that he, I think he produced almost everything because they sound so cool because they're grind beats, it just makes the song stand out more. I really like going through it as well. Same old story. Pure Water, much better than the Migos Pure Water song from earlier this year. Even uh, Wizkid popping up at the end. Nice to hear back from him post One Dance. Uh, yeah, I like I like a lot of these tracks. I feel like there's there's some there's some fun deep cuts on here, and it's it's not as good as Konichiwa. Like Konichiwa truly stands out as like a pillar of grime. But for Skepta being in his post blow up current fame status, I, I think it more than meets the appetite, which is all you can ask for. For a guy who's you know been in the game a long time yeah and check out we'll have a couple or at least one of his songs on our playlist again nostalgia best of 2019 another person we're gonna have songs for miley cyrus because she just dropped a new album she is coming which is only six six songs so yeah ep is this really an album yeah ep upon first listen i was like oh i don't know <laughs> don't know if i like this this miley who she's becoming and then I listened to it again, and I was like, oh, there's a couple songs on here I like. And I listened to the third time, and I was like, all right, I'm in. Like, I, I, I enjoy almost all of these songs. The only one I, I don't know if I enjoyed as much was uh, Dream, Drugs Rule Everything Around mm-hmm. Me. That just felt <laughs> a little bit forced and disjointed. <laughs> Shout out to Wu. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Wu- Wu-Tang just, you know, they, they, they don't need the clout, but they'll, they'll chase it. If I mean, Ghostface can. just took that check. Not the best verse from... Yeah. <laughs> exactly um but yeah overall I, I i think that there's a lot to like on here and it definitely grows on me this is like miley's what empowerment album i guess and she's been she's always had this kind of like a through line of her music you know um even back to when she was like breaking out of the hannah montana uh, mold with uh, the climb i feel like that's kind of been mm-hmm. like her her lane for a while but this really seems like she's like claiming back her sexuality and, and what it means to be a woman what immediately jumped out to me about this, which I thought was a, a huge plus, is that Miley realized that the best thing she ever made was bangers, and she's getting back to that. That doesn't mean she's making bangers, too. It does seem a little more mature, at least a little more self-aware, like a song like, uh, was it Catitude? Like, obviously, <laughs> like that's a ridiculous song, but it's so tongue-in-cheek that I actually think it's pretty funny. Yeah, you mentioned the climb. Like those early, like once she shed the Ham Montana label and became Miley Cyrus, you know, Party in the USA, big song, popular song, summer staple, right? Oh yeah. But that whole pop folk vibe, faux country vibe, didn't really like lend itself to full albums from her. And once she made bangers and got fully mainstream with interesting pop music, and again, this is like at the time of like prime Katy Perry, who also came back recently. And hearing Wrecking Ball, hearing We Can't Stop, you're like, oh, wait, she's like a different kind of pop artist and actually is a pop artist now. And it's just really interesting. And then she like obviously got really indulgent on Miley Cyrus and her dead pets, which is really weird shit, obviously. (laughs) But then, you know, I mean, obviously she got some hot water for appropriating hip hop. And remember the 23 video with Mike Mm -hmm. Will and people really weren't sure where to judge her and what kind of you know, like what what kind of value she had or whatever. So she totally course corrected on that Younger Now record from 2017 where she tried to get back to her pure folk roots. And that, we didn't even, we didn't even review that album just because it was just such a, a, like a lifeless attempt to like course correct. (laughs) So the fact that she's coming back and apparent, and actually 
She Is Miley Cyrus is the name of the forthcoming seventh albums, which this EP songs will be on. It's just exciting that she realized that's okay, that she was really pop and really sexual and also very feminist. Like, that, that, that that's cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's get back to that. I'm just excited because, again, she's really young. Like, she's like a month younger than me. She's 26. It's not like Miley Cyrus is long in the tooth or anything. So, I'm, But she's I, been I'm, around forever. It, it's true. She's been know? around like 10 years at least. It's so, crazy. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of speak to what you're talking about, as you described her albums, it almost reminds me of how we've seen Miley in the public eye, you know? There was that time when she was like grinding up on Robin Thicke at the MTV Music yep. Awards for Blurred Lines, and everybody was like, "What the hell is this?" You know, and she was like phallic this, symbols on her performances, all that shit. Yeah, she just went into this like really like out there uh, point in, in her own life, and it seems like as she's kind of finding who she is, you know, in her mid twenties at this point, at least from what the public eye can see. She it seems like she's finding the music too that fits best for her, and I think that it all makes sense. You know, she's kind of going through like what it means to be herself. She's finding what it means for her to be a successful artist, and she really, I think, knocks it out of the park with a couple of these songs. Um, Unholy, I think, was one of my favorites. Just really jumped out even from the first listen. I was like, okay, this one's probably the, my favorite one right away. Uh, Party up the street with Sway Lee, I is like awesome pop song for me, and then even the most I thought was a really. Um, good way to kind of wrap up the the cp and uh, i hope it actually wraps up the album because i think it's a good ending song which one stood out to you definitely the uh, unholy as well it's funny mother's daughter is produced by tay keith didn't hear that at first but party of the street with sway lee as one would expect with sway lee is produced by mike will and the talk about this album is that she got back to working with mike will on this and she also worked with mark ronson on this so again she's just kind of getting back to what worked best but yeah, I thought Unholy uh, really reminded me of Bangers in a good way. And that's my favorite track yeah. so far. So we'll be reviewing the full-length album when it comes out. But Denzel Curry, Drop Zoo, follow-up to last year's Taboo. Uh, Taboo kind of came out of nowhere. and Depends who you ask, dog. I was waiting for that shit. <laughs> I think in terms of how much acclaim it got. And sure. I think I think people saw Denzel Curry and they thought this could be somebody who is kind of big in rap. I, I kind of see him in terms of like almost like Travis Scottish, where I think he could really rise to that level of fame. But I think in terms of like critical success, no one really expected him to reach it in just his second album. I mean, what Imperial came out in 2016. I don't think that was even really on most people's radars at the time. It's true. Like most Florida rappers, he just was originally known for the local scene. And got big on the internet, but even Imperial, which is actually his second album, songs like ULT, songs like Naughty Head, songs like Zenith, those songs got really big on the internet. And you're like, the thing that immediately became clear about Denzel Curry was that he was an artist that had his own lane, but also immediately had his own sense of artistry, which stood out a lot, especially because he's coming from Florida. So he's coming up in the time of XXX, Kodak Black, YNW Melly just popped up from there. But he. Denzel was part of Raider Clan, which used to be ASAP affiliated. So he really had these weird roots as being this artist that is going to make these ethereal sounds. And he did that right away on those early tapes. But to have Taboo come out and be this incredibly conceptual, dense project that sounds awesome. You can really hop into any of that, but also hear some really dark, crazy shit. 
you're right. It wasn't. It still wasn't expected, even for the for us that knew that Denzel was at least something special, at least something different. Because Taboo obviously had so much work and time put into it, I did not expect another full length project to come out less than a year after that. So I was very surprised to hear about Zoo, which I think he only announced like two weeks before it, or even a week before it came out. But I was very surprised with how uh, how good it is, considering apparently he freestyled the whole thing. And that just kind of speaks to the overall talent of this dude. What I mean, what did you think? Because again, you were more new to Denzel as an artist, and obviously you get familiar with something as good as Taboo right away. You know, you, the expectations are, are 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 set, bars are raised. So, what did you think? Yeah. Taboo, I, I I did not like as much as you did. I think I recognized the artistry, but I think that the darkness and the dark themes that were in there really pushed me away. And I think what Zoo does really well is it brings in all these different sides of, of Curry as an artist. You know, it, it brings in that, that like dark metal side of him with his, his real rap chops. And I, I think he's a real storyteller in terms of how he, like, for, like builds lyrics and and verses together um but then he also kind of got to show a little bit of his funny side of this i mean like the the skit near the end with yo it was it's freaking hilarious and like <laughs> i listened to it i think like three times because i just was like laughing almost every single time when he's like he said one word the whole time like it was just those my but I, guys. <laughs> yeah different breed man it this was a really, really impressive album, and I like it a lot more than, than Taboo. Um, I think Zoo for the first half, those first five to six tracks, so, you know, Zoo, Ricky, Wish, Birds, and Automatic, and then Speedboat are just, like, untouchable. Like, what are what yeah. are the six-song run? And then it, it loses a little bit of steam in that second half. There's a lot more skits, some interludes. It, it You know, it, it ends on a strong note with P.A.T., I think in kind of a darker note in that song as well but it, that first that first half is just like uh, untouchable like it, it's really impressive that he's able to like you said finish like follow up taboo this quickly with a project that he freestyled that sounds this good just super super impressive yeah exactly uh, i i agree i feel like you get that back half you get the interlude you get the the skit as you mentioned and then he has uh, some features from some Florida compatriots of his that were no one's really aware of, and uh, those songs, yeah, a little, a little more dense, a little hit or miss. But th- that those first six tracks are just so. I mean, having Ricky be the first single, and I'm like, oh wow, like, I, and this is pre we knew the album was coming. I was like, oh wow, this is this is some really hard shit. This is really cool, cool video, and the lyrics about like family and stuff. I'm like, all right, wow, this is this is this is textbook good denzel awesome and then having speedboat come out as the second single i i still don't understand how he could have freestyled speedboat he had to have a lot of that figured out already because he does so much stuff with his switch-ups on that song and i've listened to that song a ton since that came out i think that song rules um i mean yeah wish i think sounds great yeah charlie heat yeah. co-produced that he was on taboo a lot um and then maybach having- music on birds yeah, birds having Rick Ross, that Miami OG with the new Miami star. That's really a cool moment just for rap in general. Cause this this is uh not their first time they've they've collabed. I mean, he was on Naughty Head, but the first time since Denzel got really big. That's awesome. And Rick Ross, uh, yeah, he's he's been on a run, a little bit of an underrated run right now in the features. 
Man, every time he shows up on a feature, I mean, not not to take a shot at his way or to have a bad pun, but like pound for pound, he really <laughs> might be the best like feature like drop in guy right now. Like every time I hear that, oh, and then he just comes in and just kills it. I'm like, damn. I it, it, you know it. I think it. I really was like tuned into him as a feature artist, so like just dropping in on these songs from Devil in a New Dress because he absolutely like steals that song mm. in my beautiful dark twisted fantasy but i feel like ever since then he, he really doesn't miss when he just comes in for one verse he's just like yeah i'm gonna have hard my, piano my, yeah but hard piano is a great example he kills that one um yeah this album's really great man uh i'm, I'm happy for denzel it seems like he's really pushing himself in higher and higher in the rap stratosphere right now and automatic too that's a take heath beat and we we have um, we just mentioned take heath before for uh uh, for Miley. Miley, but but it's like Take Heath blows blows up right away. We kind of have an idea of what Take Heath sounds like from Black Boy JB and Drake, obviously. But this does not sound like textbook Take Heath to me. But to hear to hear Denzel take a beat from one of the hottest mainstream producers there is and make a song that still sounds like a Denzel song, I think is really cool. And a lot of people can't do that. Um, so yeah, this is just an incredibly impressive album and. He's actually at the top. He's actually literally at the top of my list of artists I haven't seen perform, and I'm still not going to see him just yet because he's not actually doing a solo tour right now. He is opening up for Billie Eilish, and I'm not going to. A, I don't want to see Denzel in an arena. I want to see Denzel in a small venue where it's fucking rowdy as shit. So <laughs> holding out that he'll do a solo tour soon. Yeah, I just like a side note, nothing to do with, with Curry, but the Billie Eilish bad guy like meme challenge right now is like probably <laughs> my favorite thing on the internet really enjoy it speaking of dancing though you know they do that in the billy eilish bad guy thing let's talk about fossey verdon man we haven't really talked about that show this this much on here yeah i think we talked about the premiere. just the premiere yeah just mm-hmm. the premiere and it wrapped up what two weeks ago last week sam rockwell well, yeah. playing last week playing bob fossey michelle williams playing gwen verdon i have a lot of thoughts on this show I'm wondering before I get into it, did you enjoy Fossey Verdon? Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be a bit of a broken record and say a lot of the stuff I said when we talked about it in the premiere. But having seen the full season, I did like it. I um, I think there's there's just some undeniable things about this show that it's really hard to take away from the, the enterprise, even if you have issues with some decision-making or direction. Um, the choreography, the period status of the story the acting the costumes all of that is just undeniably great like it's really hard to have a problem with that it's very much this is an fx show and it feels like one in a great way um you have aya cash having this off the bench for that hospital scene right there's just it's just really well constructed the problem is at least the problem with a lot of people is that they just wish the story was told differently, given the nature of Bob Fosse as a uh, human being. But what we got, I think, is still just kind of hard to deny. And when they get away from the Fosse of it all, it's really awesome. So I still really enjoy the show, even if there has there's issues with it. I I agree. I think when they really lean into like the the dance rehearsals, when they lean into him working, when they lean into the the show tunes and and all of the work he created i think the show really thrives you know the i think the gimmicks to me didn't always work you know whether i thought him actually doing the stand-up was effective in telling 
the story of like Bob's haunted past. But then there was, uh, I think it was maybe the last episode or second to last where you had uh, Gwen uh, basically like playing her character from Chicago, but doing it in a way that was like basically like tying the the story together from scene to scene. I wasn't that kind of took me out of it at times. There there are moments in this where I was kind of like, I don't know if these choices really made sense. Overall, I think the show is really well done and you have two amazing actors giving two amazing performances and that's i think undeniable you know at times like you, you kind of forget who you're watching and it feels like you're actually watching like fossey and burden even though i don't know much about them actually like going at it they had that much chemistry but yeah episode to episode i felt like it was a little inconsistent too i felt like like the episode where they go to bob's like uh, a summer house or whatever it is there that episode fell a little flat for me but then the episode, I believe it was before it, uh, where I think it was Bob was either like coming out of the hospital or maybe it was two episodes before where Bob was, uh, you know, about to attempt suicide and ends up in the hospital. I felt like that episode stands out as one of the strongest, you know, when when he has the whole like Pippin show singing to him about his final act. That that's something I'm never going to forget from TV shows, which I think is a testament to the highs that the show had and sometimes the lows as well. Yeah, the, the unfortunate thing is that it felt like every time we're seeing Gwen Verdon, <clears throat> it's to service the story of Fosse. And they do a good job, at least, of, of explaining, usually through those title cards that update you of like the, wh- wh- where we are in time. They, un- they clearly demonstrate that Fosse is, becoming much, is much more successful than Gwen, and her career kind of stagnated or crested really early, whereas Bob was able to kind of milk his relationship with her to further his own career but not actually her so they communicate that well the problem is i wish they would have explored more of the virgin side of that and i mean it's not like they i don't feel that they lionized bob fossey's as a person that was some initial criticism when we got the first wave of you know reviews post like you know embargo when the critics got the first wave of episodes and he, he he's clearly established as a creep in this like in episode four you he like the when he doesn't uh follow the the nose and keeps making advances to one of his dancers yeah and, uh treats her like shit afterwards you know and then she feels like she needs to ask him to uh go on a drink so she can do better in the production and then even gwen offhandly will will acknowledge that you know, oh well, she's that dancer over there. She's she's so good. She doesn't have to go to your hotel room. Like it's just so matter of fact, right? But I never felt like it was lionizing or condoning it. And having a story of being having a story involving a, a shitty dude in the time of Me Too, I think is okay. It just would have been. I feel like it probably would have landed better for most people if we got more of the Verdon side and it was Fosse Verdon, not Fosse and sometimes Verdon. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think the lionizing, the part I had the most problem with was actually the end. Um, because, uh, so when Bob dies, and spoiler alert, Bob Fossey's dead. Um, <laughs> Go read Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, when he dies, and they, they like flash all the moments between him and Gwen, like, like he's like laying there thinking about how Gwen is like the love of his life and even the beginning of the episode when he's talking with Patty on the bench and he's like you know how the Bob Fosse movie would end with you know the third act would be him realizing he's supposed to be with Gwen and it's Gwen all along blah blah I feel like that gets played up a little bit because you know if you do read Bob Fosse's autobiography or his Wikipedia 
he uh he was living with Anne, who kind of gets phased out around episode six in this, um, up until he died. And then actually Gwen and Anne lived together after that. Um it it almost kind of retells the end of his life in a way to I think build that relationship and I realize it's a TV show and they're gonna take some liberties to drive that home. Um but I think they kind of glossed over I think just how shitty he was <laughs> to to Gwen specifically, but maybe, uh, but I think it, maybe if they had given more time to Gwen, to your point, to kind of flesh out her full emotional experience, it, it might have hit home a little bit better. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think it's still very much a show that if you're a fan of TV and any of the aspects of of TV making, especially in today's world, where this is a show that's still definitely rises above the top and you know, i mean in the age of 500 scripted shows a year you have to make some concessions and let stuff that's just okay or just good go but i think this show is clearly above that bar despite what you know some of the discourse would lead you to believe so i think it's still very much worth people's time so i you know i, I kind of wanted to i mean no one feels bad for rockwell or michelle williams they've both recently won awards and Rockwell really is having a great run of playing dicks. But, I mean, also, like, this is produced by what? Um, the Americans Dude, Lynn Manuel. There's a lot of star power involved in this show, so no one's going to cry over any spilled milk here. But I, I do hope it gets more of a, a look than it feels like it got. Yeah, and shout out Lynn Manuel playing Roy Scheider in that last episode. Great, great cameo. Enjoyed that. A show that we enjoyed the first season of very much Killing Eve. And I think most people that watched it did. It was my number two show of the year, I think. Yeah, it was up there Loved for me. It. I think it was top three, top four. You know, Killing Eve uh, season one was produced, written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And it very much, I think, in a lot of ways, at least to me, felt like she intended it to be one season. Same way that, that Fleabag kind of felt. Like, it was intended to be one season. She never really thought about what season two would look like. And it ended on this note where it was like, if this is where it goes, this is a great ending. And yeah, it was too popular. It, it gained too much steam. And they were like, gotta re-up it. Let's get that season two. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge is like, I'm too busy. I got other stuff to do. The show literally increases ratings week to week, yep. every single week, which is pretty unparalleled for a, an a, a BBC America show, you know? But like the fact that you could tell that it was such a hit was post that Hulu run. They simulcast this on AMC this time around. And while it didn't actually do the increased ratings week to week thing, it actually made the single greatest ratings increase year to year for a turning show in the past three years. So Killing Eve really built a buzz and really had people evangelizing for it in a way that you just don't really see on cable anymore. And that's really just really cool as a fan of TV to see. Uh, unfortunately, as you've been alluding to, it doesn't quite feel as tight this time around when it felt like they kind of had to formulate the season two on the fly with a new showrunner. And we already know that season three uh, will have another new showrunner. I guess that's that's the way they want to do it. That's cool, I guess. But unfortunately, it just felt like they just kind of had to write themselves out of a corner that Phoebe Waller-Bridge left him in. And the season just isn't as strong, like easily. Yeah, and it, the way that they kind of start writing themselves out of the corner at the beginning of the season is Jodie Comer playing Villanelle. It's almost kind of like the the Matthew McConaughey tracking shot. It, it felt like in a sense it wasn't a tracking shot, but just kind of like that escape from like a, a situation that feels 
dire and she is probably the biggest star in all of this is is Cummer. She's really broken out and she steals God, yeah. almost every single scene she is in and I think it's partially the character and partially just her charisma is off the charts. But I think where I kind of like left feeling a lot of the time throughout the season was Jodie Cummer is great, Sandra O oh is great, Fiona Shaw is great. Everybody I'm watching on screen, I'm really enjoying. But is this show making sense? Like, how how does any of this actually work? What are the mechanics here? And I think I, I kind of just felt like, so they, they came up with a plot because they wanted to have more of them, like, together and, and to play that up. Whereas a lot of the, what the first season, I think, thrived on was, like, this, like, longing from afar. And I guess you couldn't really the, maintain yeah, The cat and mouse. Yeah. It, and the cat and mouse eventually has to come together. But um, it almost felt like the way they got thrown together just kind of was like, Wait, why? Just because Villanelle's the only one that can scare this one person? Like that's the reason? Yeah, it just it it just felt very contrived, and that's just disappointing because the first season had none of that. And meanwhile, as you're saying, like, how, how, what are the mechanics of all this? Right? We still don't really get any idea what the fuck the twelve has to do with anything. Right? After two seasons, and Constantine is in this season way less. Obviously, we knew he didn't die season one just too too charismatic great relationship with fiona shaw's character like it made too much sense for him to be back i'm happy he's back but constantine just kind of dips in and out meanwhile they set up uh villanelle's new handler raymond and then the way the season ends with him uh getting uh literally axed (laughs) um the problem was he was never really felt like a true antagonist so I didn't really feel like that there was that conflict was almost built up more than it, I feel like it deserved to be. Meanwhile, in the beginning, we have this new hitman, hitwoman character, the ghost, which just feels like it's totally dropped halfway through the season as that gets resolved abruptly. And then we have Aaron uh, Pear, the uh, tech douche weirdo, uh, sells your data guy, kind of a bit of a trope. Played by Henry and Lloyd he's Hughes, ki- who's I think he's fantastic. He is, but his character is also kind of very predictable. And I don't know. I just feel like everything was just used as a crutch. And the way it ends, obviously, with this clearly fake cliffhanger, which is just really a beat for beat uh, re- redo yeah. of the season one cliffhanger, except they flip the roles. Uh, it's like the show is always it's it's really watchable like and because the the leads are so so great and so charismatic and just so fun just to watch do literally anything the show is still fun but man I, the plot just really started to wear on me after a while and frankly like the about obsession and finding what makes you happy and all that which was in season 1 still here and still good and i i do like that they try and explore deeper things and it's not just about the the plot to plot you know uh killing of it all if they're actually, they're actually trying to explore stuff on this the problem was i actually found like eve's obsession towards the end of the season to be kind of like super grating yes yeah. like and i frankly, i just found eve as a character to be very grating at the end and just kind of annoying well, it, which is hard to do because sandra is such a charismatic effervescent yeah she's so likable whenever she's on screen and they just kind of made eve feel really unlikable at times which was not really the case at all in season one i was just let down you know for for as much as like you you see eve grappling with these like desires she has these like 
new feelings. Like there's that scene where she's waiting for a train when she's kind of fiddling with her bulletproof vest and that guy knocks into her and she thinks about pushing him in front of the train as it approaches and you kind of see her like slowly and I guess this is the way her arc this season was slowly moving towards becoming this killer, accepting that she is like villain now, that she has these same qualities. Um just her like back and forth with all of it and just I think Eve's back and forthness throughout the whole season. It felt like she was always kind of going back and forth between two things, you know, wanting Villanelle and then also wanting to get back with her husband, you know, wanting to uh, be a good MI6 uh, agent and then also wanting to live in this world of the 12. You know, it's it, it just felt like she was always kind of between two places and it felt a little frustrating. And I think that also her relationship with Villanelle throughout the season was pretty frustrating because it, it felt like it was this tug of war but it felt worn down by the end like it wasn't fresh it was like okay we get it she doesn't want to give in to this temptation but like after five episodes i don't need her to like be getting angry every time villanelle's like you know coming on to her or trying to like get her to like accept her it's just it felt like a little bit drawn out um however i think where the show still really thrived is it's incredibly stylish um yeah oh yeah you know the the costumes for for comer especially stand out you know whether it's her in the the onesie from the hospital um that outfit when she first approaches eve's husband uh Mm -hmm. on the field trip is just like iconic (laughs) and joey comer just wears the pink dress obviously yeah the pink dress uh oh yeah that that whole scene where she's wearing like the pig mask is like just ridiculous yeah crazy um so that I think there's still a lot here, and the music drops I think still are really good, um, but I hope that Suzanne Heathcote, who's been tapped to be the showrunner for season three, can kind of uh, make th- make this third season feel a little bit more, I don't know, cohesive and like it makes a little bit more sense. I think. Yeah, that's the hope. You know, how many seasons do you think they can do with this show? Well, that's the problem. I feel like the whole crux of the show. They're not going to kill Eve or Villanelle. They're not going to totally change what the show is or lose one of their leads. Therefore, I have a hard time understanding how the story is going to continue to be not feel contrived unless they really find a way to write something really cool and just kind of change the dynamic between the two characters because the obsession angle, which I said I liked doesn't land as well when it just feels like you're using crayons to get us there, you know? So I would not mind if this show takes a little longer than a straight up year to come back. Maybe they take some more time to really hash this out. I uh, didn't check. Maybe they're starting production in a few months. I don't know. Um, but because season one was so strong, I just really want, to, want the show to get back to that, or at least get close to that, you know? Because, again, you have these leads. You have this style. You have this chemistry between your two leads. Like, there, there's so much here still, even in a down season, that I feel like AMC, BBC America, they'll be extra motivated, actually, to try and get that back, given these rating gains. Like, you have a, a certified hit that the critics did like, so let's, let's try and tweak that just a little bit. So we'll see. Yeah, and the thing I think that will be a hindrance to the show if it's not made in the next year is I have to expect Jodie Cummer's going to start getting offers to make a lot of things. Although checking her IMDb, uh, she only has one thing lined up, which is Free Guy in 2020. 
as Molotov Girl, which I I'm not, I know nothing about this project. It looks like Ryan Reynolds is in some way attached to it. Um, but I mean, if, if she's that available, if she really doesn't have anything else going on, uh, keep keep making them, I guess, while you still have Jodie Comer. Cause I, I don't see her staying uh, not busy. So Olivia Wilde in her debut directing uh made book smart uh movie that's been out for a couple weeks now you've you got around to it early i i took a little bit longer unfortunately uh because this this movie is a lot of fun man like we talked about long shot a couple weeks ago and that was by far my favorite comedy of the year quickly dethroned by book smart <laughs> <laughs> until yeah now. <laughs> a very a very short stay at the top um this movie's only made 14 million pretty big flop very disheartening for these these small fucking annapurna man but i i I, you know people have been saying it's gonna be a cult classic i don't see how it can't be because i feel like this is there's too much in here that that lock it in is liked and that i think people who are in high school now are going to be when they discover this on netflix in six months are going to be blowing it up um it stars uh beanie feldstein uh caitlin dever um and deaver deaver devers devers (laughs) and then billy lord my girl who i want to talk about her a little bit but you saw booksmart a while ago how how has it been sitting with you since you saw it yeah i saw it uh the week before it came out they had like preview screenings like one one show time on that friday night um so i saw it like a packed ass theater and this theater was, I don't know, they were liquored up or what, but this theater was fucking roaring. Like, we saw the, the was it Good Boys, Bad Boys trailer, the Jacob Tremblay, like the kids who curse and do fucked up shit. Yeah. Uh, people were dying for that trailer. Like, the energy was high. And so much so that even, like, the, the jokes that were in the Book Smart trailer were still getting huge laugh lines. So I was definitely in a room that was, like, in the bag for the movie. But it was still a great experience. And... Since then, you know, uh, I mean, since since seeing that, I was like, I, I have a week to tell everyone how great the movie is that no one else really saw, and then everyone else gets to see it. Uh, but then quickly, the narrative becomes about the 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 poor box office and the the choice to put it out against Aladdin. Which, if you look at the demo, uh, they had literally the same demo numbers in terms of uh, age and uh, gender splits and stuff, and just quite a miscalculation on Annapurna's part to mo- open this movie wide and also in the heat of the summer. So that kind of like derailed the whole thing, but like, actually, if you just got he's marinated on the movie, you're like, man, like cult classic. Obviously, lock this in. This is like everybody wants some. This is like any of these. Uh, I think like long shot to a lesser extent as well. It's like comedies have a hard time making inroads. Even Blockers and Game Night last year were both lauded movies that did just okay, did pretty good actually, given the state of comedies, but they have a hard time breaking out in the moment and book smart despite most people not seeing it i feel like it's really lasting and resonating with everyone who sees it and of course i felt felt that way so i mean how did how did you feel about seeing it once you heard more of the the narrative and talking points after it had been out for a little bit yeah i felt really sad because this is a movie that people should be seeing um i think if if you went to high school you can relate to somebody in here or at least something in here um and 
I I thought the performances and, and Olivia Wilde too for this being her debut film. I feel really optimistic about her as a filmmaker because even though I think a lot of the shots that stand out are borrowed from other filmmakers in the past, I still think the way that she put this movie together, the way that she added her own like kind of, kind of touches onto it, really made a special film about this these two girls and their relationship. I know Superbad is like the lazy comparison for this, mm-hmm. but I see it. Like it, it felt like Superbad a lot. Superbad meets well. Eighth Grade. Yeah, and, and the the awkwardness of some of it was like I was like crawling out of my skin. Um, now <laughs> I saw it pretty much in a theater with nobody. It's really sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I I mean, I, the time of day I also went was sure not in, conducive to a comedy. I think, but. Yeah, where, where should we start talking about this? Well, like, what what stood out to you, I guess, the most? What what scenes, maybe? What what do you want to talk about? Yeah, so it, it, as you mentioned, the visual standout, it, it just looks really great. Um, but I think obviously this movie, the success or failure of this movie, largely hinges on its two leads, Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein, and they have the overwhelming majority of all the lines and have most of the screen time. And thus, they need to be good and compelling and charismatic and have good chemistry between each other, obviously, because they're talking to each other the whole fucking time. That all has to work or this movie isn't going to function. And that would be the case whether this was just a drama or has to be funny. And thankfully, they both nail it. I think Caitlin Deaver's character, uh, what's her name? Um, Amy. Amy. Amy, as a out gay woman, young woman, who just happens to be gay. It's not about her finding out that she's gay. She's just already gay, like most people that are gay. The choice to tell it in that way or not tell it in that way just stands out because that's never how we don't get it that way, you know? So the fact that they don't make it a big fucking deal. Right. She, she's out. She's gay. She's out and she's accepted for it. It's not like she has any... There's no issue around it. Right. Meanwhile, Molly, being Felstein, is really funny because obviously everyone knows she's jonah hill's younger sister but she never really played played the jonah hill is my brother card in her career like she came up slowly she was in neighbors too she was in Lady Bird, of course but she also had a very successful theater career and it just feels like beanie feldstein tried to play it uh, her way as best she could obviously and having this be that true breakout for her really stood out to me because I'm like, we knew that she was really talented, especially once we saw her in Lady Bird when you're like, yeah, like she's just fucking throwing heat playing off Cersei Ronan the whole time in that movie. And like, yeah, this she's really talented, obviously. But to have her, like, really have her own role in a two-hander like this and nail it really stood out to me just because I'm really excited to see her and Kaylin Deaver for that matter. Just I want to see what they do next just because I can tell that like these two are, even if this movie didn't make any money, they're, they're still like stars, future stars. Which is really exciting. I love. I love to see that. But they they carry the movie, and thus the movie works, which is really exciting. Yeah, their their performances are excellent. I think Molly especially uh, stood out to me because uh, Beanie she basically had to play this very I think unlikable person, just stuck up, thinks they're better than other people, takes himself way too seriously, and. Then she has this huge turn throughout and kind of has this revelation of like <laughs> that, that scene in the bathroom where she finds out everybody else got into these Ivy League schools too. And like, yeah. 
it's kind of like like that siren sound starts going off and like she starts freaking out i think is is excellent really good hand jobs (laughs) (laughs) i just i just feel like her turn throughout the film is kind of like what drives it up until amy kind of has that breakout moment in the party you know and i feel like like the movie's good and, and then when it gets to that party it like almost like jumps to another level that party scene i feel like it has so many memorable shots i mean them fighting is one um amy hooking up with the uh the hot popular girl in the bathroom is a scene the pool. that i think is very memorable the pool stylistically that that shot in the pool is like it's like something out of like a music video like it's just crazy um actually reminded me of a shot from rocket man which we're gonna be talking about in a second when he's in sure. the pool and people of start jumping i also i also feel like their performances felt so realistic to high school <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. I, I feel like, like we've seen a lot of high school movies think about like i don't know 10 things i hate about you or something like that and so much of that feels like unrealistic to what high school actually is but they felt so true to high school characters it was uncanny right and i think that's actually an interesting point people have been talking about that a lot um so I, I really like the rest of the ensemble of the, you know, people that play her classmates. Uh, you mentioned Billy Lord. We've known about her. Most of these actors are either brand new or haven't been known for much. I mean, I know Nick is actually played by Mason Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s son. But I, no one's really familiar with his work, quote unquote, right? Girl plays AAA, uh, stoner kid. All Like, no one really knows who these, these kids are. But they all feel like... The theater kids, same thing, right? Um, actually, Noah Galvin, one of the, one of the theater kids, played Dear Evan Hansen, the the title role. But still, they, they they all kind of feel like characters that you understand who these characters are, even though they don't have that many lines, and they actually feel like real characters, even if they might be a little archetypical on the surface. The thing, though, is I think the, the criticism of the movie, like legit criticism at least, was that this is a really like idealized high school setting where there is no sense of bullying or clicks or anything like that. And I do feel like it's kind of like dishonest to pretend that shit just doesn't exist in 2019, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, like, yes, Amy isn't shamed for being gay. And that certainly doesn't happen as much as it used to, but it still does happen. So I feel like maybe it is kind of presented as like a conflictless world where we're just hanging out with all these rich kids in L.A., so I understand if that maybe doesn't resonate with everyone. Again, like two rich white girls, like at the end of the day, it's 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 not for everyone, I guess. But what the movie still is, though, is a really compelling coming-of-age story that does feel refreshed for today, as we've said, and just really kind of hinges on like great moments and set pieces. Again, we're not watching anything explode or anything, but like the moments, like when you're on the on the cruise ship in the beginning, right, oh, yeah. or the party at the end, as you mentioned. Um, or the totally out of nowhere scene where they do fucking drugs and it goes all claymation. The, it, the movie just has standout moments, and this that's why this is going to be a cult classic that people watch on the streaming forever because it just has those moments that grab people. The problem is that most of the kids that will appreciate what this movie does aren't going out to see movies that aren't blockbusters. Thus, they didn't actually see it yet. Gigi, uh, Billy Lord probably my favorite part throughout the whole thing and her running bit where she just like was somehow where they were every time just like popping up was like the oh hey thing <laughs> yeah um also when uh her her friend uh skylar gazando who played yep. Jer- uh, jared when he is talking about how he wants to like 
build planes or design planes, something like that. And then he looks over, he's like, I should probably go make sure that isn't a true death blow. Like, just hysterical. Like, and it like summed up her character so well. I felt like, um, right. I liked her a lot. Yeah, and and that that was like I think his real first role, Skylar Gazanda, which is pretty impressive. Cause I thought he was great. Yeah, it's funny too. Like I saw um, <laughs> Olivia Wilde after she, you know she was, she tweeted a lot of during the opening weekend. She's like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, we we still these chances casting all these people, and some people were like clapping back. It's like, well, actually. You cast Jonah Hill's sister, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s son, the guy from Dear Evan Hansen. Your husband is the principal. Will Forte's in this. Like Lisa Kudrow. and oh, Carrie Carrie Fisher's daughter. It's like yeah. you you didn't actually dig that deep. And it's like <laughs> fair. And Caitlin Deaver's been known a long time. She was unjustified. She was just in Beautiful Boy. Like she's not a unknown or anything either. So it's like I guess that, that's a fair point. But it's not. It was just something Olivia Wilde was saying. But yeah, man, I. Love this film. I, have, I think I have it number three on the year right now uh, behind High Life and Us. We'll see how, how that stacks up. A really uh, high approval rank for me. How high is Godzilla on that list? <laughs> Gojira, King of Monsters, sequel to 2014 Godzilla movie from Gareth Edwards and also connected to the 2017 Kong Skull Island from Jordan Vote Roberts. The monster universe. The legendary monster verse yes third film in that right and we're getting kong uh godzilla versus kong kong versus godzilla i forget next year they they just finished filming it yeah godzilla king of monsters man trailer awesome awesome all of them all of them are great and frankly the teaser first teaser for godzilla 2014 is one of the greatest trailers of the decade like that shit with the halo jump where you have david straheron doing this monologue and like the visuals of that that shit fucking rules like it, it's kind of like the tired talking point that the rogue one trailer is better than rogue one the godzilla teaser is better than godzilla like that shit is fucking flawless right <laughs> and i thought godzilla king of monsters man wouldn't you like oh fuck Ghidorah's in this three heads bro versus a guy <laughs> with one head the fuck and then rodan's in this mothra's in this kong might be in this he's not <laughs> tywin lannister fuck man this shit's gonna rule and then you watch the movie and Billy Bobby Brown. The story is fucking really stupid. I'll just say it. Oh, a monster movie story is really <laughs> fucking stupid. That's what's disappointing about it because Godzilla 2014 was grounded and really cool and smart. <laughs> Some people were like, "We didn't get enough Godzilla. Too much humans." <laughs> Aaron Taylor Johnson, I don't want this. Brian Cranston died too early. Then us real heads are like, "Actually, no." There's like some like fucking artistry in this movie, and Gareth Edwards' idea of scale is really good, and that's why he got ca- uh, chosen for Rogue One. Kong Skull Island has great fucking '80s movie aesthetic and great humor, and an awesome cast, and this really funny bits like the Dear Billy thing from uh, what's his name, and I like that movie too. And then we have Godzilla King of Monsters, which just totally doesn't feel like it has anything. And I don't care about the story being stupid. Again, we're talking about fucking mutant lizard who breathes fucking fire look at the screen like yeah. <laughs> i'm not i'm not trying to be all like high uh, high brow here but the problem is the story like darts around so much with this incredibly deep cast of human characters that it almost distracts you and takes you away from the shit we want to see which was godzilla fighting the fucking three-headed dragon right like, that's why we're here and because the story is distracting and taking us out it's really disappointing, and sometimes we're just we're, we're we'll cut from the humans to 
these like really quick cuts of the fighting. It's really hard to see it at sometimes, and it just feels like it'll pl- it, it it clearly is pleasing some of like the people that just want to see the cool effects. But I'm just disappointed because I knew it could have been better given the two movies it's following up, and. You know, I mean, at the end, like, I, I, frankly, my favorite part of the movie is watching Fenway Park get destroyed <laughs> uh, in, in all you. its glory. A lot of Boston stuff at the end, pretty great. But <laughs> any, all the beats with the human characters just don't land at all. And, and here, let me let me run Whoa. it down for you. Real what about fucking. Billy Bobby Brown? Come on. So we got Kyle Chandler, Vera Farmiga, and Lily Bobby Brown, their family. Uh, estranged, anyway. Uh, then we have Ken Watanabe and Sally Hawkins, who work for Monarch. They're back from... Godzilla 2014. Thomas Miltich, also there. They have soldiers, played by Anthony Ramos and O'Shea Jackson Jr. And they also have a tech guy, played by Bradley Whitford. And then, the the bad guy, the echo terrorist, is Charles Dance, aka Tyler Lannister. I like most of these people so far. A lot of fucking humans. And uh, most of them live, too. Just kind of surprising. Yeah, it just, um, it, it's the action, when they actually like stick with it, is really badass and crazy. And like they, they did special effects on this movie for like a year and a half. Like, Pre, uh, post-production was long as fuck and it shows like it looks awesome and cinematography frankly is really cool like the, some of the mothra scenes look awesome especially with the colors and stuff um the problem was it just guys it's such a hokey, hokey story and <laughs> because they focus so much on the hokey story and it takes just takes you out of it at times like bradley whitford just feels like he's in a different movie at all with these really weird one-liners that never stop it, it got just d- disappointing just because of the promise of the first Godzilla and Kong Skull Island as well. So if if you want monster on monster, it'll still give you that. But I don't know. Godzilla 2014 kind of almost felt like high art as far as monster movies go. And we didn't get that this time. Yeah, Depends well, what you Dave, want. I think, I think most people agree with you. Even though it won the box office this past weekend, it only beat Aladdin by $5 million and it only grossed $47 million. This not, is not great. It may did a little better overseas, and I mean, 2014 and Kong Skull Island, they both made like 500 million worldwide. I'm sure this one will still get there, or at least get very close. But yeah, it, it is kind of surprising that it Aladdin kind of ate its lunch a little bit. Like the it, uh, Aladdin outgrossed it on Saturday and Sunday, which is fucking wild. That is wild. And we'll see how it lasts because we got X Men Dark Phoenix coming out, and then Toy Story Four a week after that. So maybe it has a big drop off. Here in the states, we'll see how it does overseas. But either way, we're going to get Kong's, Kong uh, versus Godzilla. I got the Henry film that I believe Brian Tyree Henry is in it. Uh, Skarsgård's in it. Uh, some survivors from this movie are back. I don't know. We'll see. But a little disappointing. Were you disappointed by Rocket Man? Fuck no, dog. <laughs> I love this movie. What about you? That that Eg- Egerton stock is on the rise. High fucking yield, man. Bye, bye, Yo. bye. <laughs> Directed by Dexter Fletcher, who replaced Brian Singer for the yep. last couple of weeks of How shooting about that? Rhapsody. <laughs> uh, probably a good person to have come and uh, direct your your next biopic, musical biopic. Yeah, I thought this movie was great. Um, I think my main takeaway is Elton John really made some good songs that I enjoy <laughs> listening to. And um, he also seems to really have a lot of issues with his parents, which... Uh, what gave you that idea (laughs) he just didn't seem to like him very much i don't know uh (laughs) uh yeah but so uh, it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about bohemian rhapsody because it's gonna be you know bohemian rhapsody won bohemian rhapsody won best picture last year (laughs) did it it's just you sure about that 
I'm not sure about that. Actually. Green Book won. Remember? Green Book won. Sorry. Yeah. Green Book won. Rami Malek won Best Actor. And it won um, the two sound awards. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Um, and there were a lot of issues with Bohemian Rhapsody. You can check out our breakout for that. Um, but I think mostly what it came down to is Bohemian Rhapsody for as awesome as some of the the scenes were. Yep. I think Live Aid is one that stands out. For sure. It kind of felt a bit soulless in a way. I don't know if that's the right word yeah. necessarily. It, it just felt like we're just going through the motions of the the story, the plot of real the, of real life Queen story, except when we change things, which was often. Yeah. But you, we're just kind of getting from uh, music moment to music moment, so we right. can do the sing-alongs with the songs we know you and the audience like, and you can watch Rami Malek uh, do a really good Freddie impression when he's performing, and. That resonated with a lot of people, and that's why the movie was such a big success. I mean, this movie made fucking $800 million worldwide. People like Queen, you know? Yeah. But the movie and, was just incredibly safe and, and and a little bit stale if you actually try and analyze it as a film. And I don't think Rocketman is that, which is why I like it so much. Yeah, and Rocketman, I think almost something like Across the Universe feels like a movie that's more comparable in terms of vision. Um, you know, like the fantastical elements yep. of it are really a lot similar in that sense but where rocket man excels where a movie like cross universe i think doesn't is the music is what drives the plot whereas in rocket man taron egerton and his relationship with uh with bernie throughout yeah played by jimmy um, bell jimmy bell uh is what really drives this whole thing and mm-hmm. the music is used to emphasize those emotions in that moment and to really bring you to a place. And I think it it adds more to the character rather than feeling like this movie is about the music. And I think that's yeah. why I enjoyed Rocket Man so much is that it, this felt like a story about someone rather than here's some cool visuals to the, these songs you're already doing. Right. And like I think maybe for some people, I, I mean, this did a A minus cinema score, which is fa- fantastic, obviously. But some people will probably be like, you know, I wish we didn't cut away from uh, Rocket Man the song so fast. I kind of like the sing along stuff because they come, they want that following up Amy Rhapsody. But you're right, they don't take a time, uh, take the time to go all karaoke for five minutes. They have the songs come in and usually it's in a fantastical sense which is really cool it starts off early but i think it's a really effective way of introducing the hit songs of Alan john's career which a lot of them came in a very short amount of time uh but having that focus on driving the story you know whereas bohemian just kind of felt like we were having the story get us to the next song and some people probably prefer the the latter but i think if you're talking about filmmaking even if this movie wasn't as fantastical and just kind of felt formulaic like some of the other parts might feel to some people, it just is much more inspired choice of, of storytelling. And I, that's why I feel like this movie just is inherently going to age way better. And that's despite the fact like <laughs> Taron Edgerton, we had some reservations when, when we heard about this movie because he is singing. And Taron Edgerton is not Elton John, obviously. <laughs> so that inherently uh, is a risk. You know, and I mean, you can listen to his versions in the movie or listen to the soundtrack. They don't, they're, they're not Elton's versions, obviously, but they think they're good enough. And sometimes you're just good. And when we have that in a movie, I, did, I feel like it just kind of brings more. You know, like Bradley Cooper sang in A Star is Born. And that was great, you know? And I think Taron, he, 
you know, he he's I don't think he's as good of an actor straight up as Rami. But I actually like the choices he made in this because he's actually allowed to make choices, you know, whereas Rami was just doing more of a uh, mimicry of sorts, which was still incredibly impressive. But Taryn, I feel like I actually tried to embody Elton a little bit. And part of that thing is the choice of the script is they don't sanitize the story of Elton John. This movie's rated R. There's drugs in this. There's sex in this. Bohemian Rhapsody largely flattened out uh, everything gay about Freddie Mercury. Which, if you ask most gay people, they were not a fan of that, you know. So, yeah. and it's it's not like Rocket Man is pornographic. They don't actually really show that much, but they don't run away from anything. And frankly, I feel like that goes a long way because that's just frankly not what we see often in mainstream entertainment. I, I and I think that that probably has two things. I think if Freddie Mercury was as involved with this as Elton John has been with this yeah. biopic. There, it probably would have Bohemian Rhapsody probably would have come out a little bit differently. Um, Elton John has been uh, on board with this being made, I think, for like the last twenty years. I mean, people like uh, Justin Timberlake were attached to this at one point. Oh God! Uh, to play Elton John, um, Tom Hardy was at at one point attached oh, to play Elton John. <laughs> there, it, this has been in the works for a while, and I think it actually Tom Hardy would have loved wearing the costumes. I'll tell you that <laughs> he would have only worn the costumes, only masks and big glasses. Only masks. Um, it would have been insane. Uh, honestly, though, Edgerton brings such an energy to this that feels, in one sense, rock star, and in another sense, like broken person. And I think that embodies yeah. exactly what the movie was going for. Um, and this movie obviously doesn't work if he's not good, because oh, it starts off with him, you know, storming in to tell his story in basically like an AA or like a support group type setting, mm-hmm. and that's kind of like the the, the framing device mm-hmm. yeah the framing of the film um but then pretty much every scene from there on out is about him and i, I can't actually think of a scene that he's not in um oh yeah so just wow. amazing work by him uh i also thought that the performances from the the you know uh, dallas bryce howard um bryce dallas howard i'm sorry there you go uh <laughs> uh jamie bell and richard madden were yeah, really strong although Richard Madden playing the same guy that Aiden Gillian plays in yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. Is uh, like, John Reed. Yeah, just so ridiculous. Uh, I <laughs> wish they had just had one of them play both. It's a dead man switch, Vicky. <laughs> uh, that that Game of Thrones uh, switch up, that little yeah, finger. That's pretty funny. Up, you, um, well, you know, it's, you mentioned that Elton is the producer of this movie. And some people are like throwing that out as as a negative and. The thing about Bohemian Rhapsody, that, of course, had heavy involvement from Roger Taylor and Brian May. And you can see the choices they made with their influence on Bohemian Rhapsody. We fe- we can rewind a few years. Remember when this was supposed to be a very hedonist uh, tale, R-rated, with Sasha Baron Cohen as Freddy? And then the Queen people are like, oh, no, we don't want that. We actually want more of a hagiography hey, about Queen. And that's what we got. They Brian, run away Brian from May's most of the like, conflict. Brian May's like, oh, you want to hear this interesting story about Freddie Mercury's sexuality? Well, watch me tell them how I made another one bites the dust. Like, <laughs> well, here's, uh, here's hold, how I developed We Will Rock You. Clap, clap, Hold that stop. thought, because I actually want to go back to another one bites the dust. But because, uh, El- because Rocket Man doesn't run away from the problems that Elton had in his career, and yes, it's still 
you know, about the great man. Obviously, it's still self-serving in a certain sense, but because the movie is very much about the ups and downs, I don't find it a problem that Ellen was so involved with a movie about him. Um, also, because the movie's so fantastical, the liberties it might take with the the facts, frankly, are just way more forgivable because, frankly, uh from what, 1971 to 1990? He gets sober in 1990. That's just a big blur in Rockaman. It's really tough to know when things happen. You know, the Dodger Stadium uh, performance and uh, I'm Still Standing. Like, everything's kind of out of place. Like, I'm Still Standing came out, I think, seven years before he got sober, for example. But because it's being framed as Elton at AA, just kind of going through his memory, it's kind it's okay that's out of order. And the very first time I really thought of this was when he's like, what's your, what's your last name, lad? And he's like, Elton. And he looks at a picture of John Lennon. And there's a little glow, like a little halo around John Lennon's head. And he's like, John. Or you don't even know if he says it. But it's like, obviously, that wasn't supposed to be taken literally, right? But the problem is Bohemian Rhapsody, they have this argument in the studio. And they very seriously were like, oh, shit, lad. What's that? Is that another one bites the dust? We're going to stop fighting now and make this smash hit song. <laughs> And it's yeah. told so it's it's told as if Matter it was it was true, and it's just that's just where the movies differ, you know. They said they they have two very different ambitions. I I, I did want to correct something I said earlier. Uh, Edgerton is not in the beginning of this film because it's Elton John as a child, uh, mm-hmm. but once it's Elton as an correct. adult, he's in every scene. Um, but I, I agree the the fantastical elements. I think play more like a memory more like elton john you're like you're seeing it through his mind reflecting on these things and i, I think some of the fantastic elements didn't quite stick like the ending therapy scene is like it's a bit of an eye roll <laughs> yeah it's kind of like oh, okay like uh, i get it like uh, you didn't need to be this blatant about it but i think overall it really adds to like this feeling of like just jumping from place to places like person who was dealing with this brokenness and with drugs and alcohol i mean you kind of get that sense of him just like jumping around when he basically just wakes up in these memories and he's kind of like trying to figure out how he got there whether it's when he like takes off from dodger stadium as a firework and explodes into the the plane going over then he's having this conversation with bernie as a rocket man you could you could say yeah another bit on the nose uh fantastical (laughs) element but um I think a, a lot of it actually really added to it and made you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm inside the head of this character rather than, oh, this is how things actually happened, which was one of our biggest gripes with Bohemian Rhapsody, like you already said. So, um, Any other thoughts on this? Any, I mean, you know, just, man. I mean, yeah, I, I've had, uh, I believe you two have had stock in Terran ever since Kingsman 1, where he just immediately busts on the scene as this incredibly debonair, charismatic English chap. And you're like, that guy is a star. Eggsy. Eggsy. Chap. And, Loke. you know, we haven't got as much since then. You know, Robin Hood last year, big flop. It, on, on, on the surface, sounded like a cool idea for him. Movie was just way too bad for him to have any chance, right? Uh in Eddie the Eagle didn't really blast uh, blast off or anything, but that was actually his first work with Dexter Fletcher. And I was just waiting for Taron to do something apart from Kingsman because you could see that talent. And I know maybe some people 
will watch Rocket Man and be like, Taron was really good in the song. He was actually a really good singer, but maybe someone else could have done it a little better. But I'm really happy that he actually got picked for this. And maybe it was because Dexter Fletcher had that relationship with him. That's how it goes. But I'm just really happy he got this look because you just know it's going to spiral from here now for him, which is really great. And obviously his relationship with Elton John throughout all the press, you know, like seeing him cry at Khan after the, the standing O they got, yeah. it's just kind of like really heartwarming. <laughs> um, yeah, he seems like a super sincere dude, which is great. Yeah. Um, my only and, gripe with him being cast Elton John is he's way too handsome. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's what people were saying. And, <laughs> you know, the I, that kind of leads me to something I was thinking. It's like, given my age, given your age, we only know of Elton John as an old man, obviously. Like, he, this movie's in the 70s. Like, obviously, we don't know about that. But I didn't really have any frame of reference for, like, Elton as a in-the-moment celebrity. I wasn't really that familiar with him. In that in that guard, like regard, like I mean, I'm trying to think, like he was I guess, the Lion King guy. I guess Lion King is my first exposure. Yeah. But like this movie reminds you of like this dude just has fucking records, man. And because it's like <laughs> yeah. cool piano rock, it's just like these are records that are like so unlike most other stuff. Like who else has hits that like sound like this? Does anyone? Like Billy Joel, I guess. Like Yeah. It, it just it just I, I've listened to Alan John, like for like four hours since i saw the movie yesterday like yeah and that's 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 a great uh a great thing to accomplish when it's a musical so i found myself in the theater having a similar thought of like what current artist can just sit at a piano and like command this much attention and i can't i didn't really come up with anybody um it's you know it's really impressive and he obviously back when he first was coming up and the movie shows us i think really well was a lot more rock and i think the way i knew him growing up was as this like piano ballad type guy yeah. um with these really uh intricate songs you know like bernie's i, I didn't realize he had a writing partner actually until this yeah film, same but bernie's writing is like it's almost like poems in a lot of ways mm-hmm. it's not very straightforward you know a song like my song or even rocket man is very like complex your song levels um and i think i i think this what this movie does for people of our generation is it kind of helps to not only see Elton John for who he was and who he, and kind of meld that with who he is now at least in our minds, but it also kind of helps us understand that it wasn't just him. Like he had help, and I think that is actually a really great thing to add in because I always thought it was just him alone writing these songs. Same, yeah, same. And, uh, <laughs> I like that they don't. Uh, again, that's something that. Elton John, as a creative force on the film, could have skewed that a little bit to kind of retell his history. Obviously, why would he? This is his best friend. Like, he wouldn't lie about this. That's the kind of guy he is. But um, showing the cracks, quote-unquote, in the man and having that actually be a big force in the third act of the movie when he's, you know, having his breakdowns. It's really, yeah. um, really compelling stuff, whether you're familiar with the story or not. Absolutely. Um, why don't we wrap up there with Rocket Man? What are we talking about next week? Yeah, so next week we have uh, Chernobyl, which just finished. We're going to talk about that in full. The HBO show that came out of nowhere and got a lot of crit- critical acclaim and buzz really fast, so that's exciting. Uh, we'll talk about that. Black Mirror, back with a three-episode season, a la the pre-Netflix UK season, so we're excited about Black Mirror, of course, on Netflix. That's on Wednesday. 
uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix. I'll be at least be chiming in on that. The culmination of the Fox X-Men series, very up and down franchise that actually has meant a lot to me as one of the first blockbusters that I really got attached to. Obviously, X-Men 1 came out in 2000, so it's been a long time. Um, Big Little Lies season two premiere, Meryl Streep in the show now. Obviously, that's must-see TV. And then Jonas Brothers, their first album in 10 fucking years somehow, are here. So, plenty of stuff to talk about. Uh, we got lots to talk about. We'll be talking about it next week. Uh, hit that subscribe button. Go to SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and uh, catch us any way you, you want to. We love you. We'll see you next week. Peace out.